are going through lessons just uh, unrelated to one another, except that uh, I'm going through the alphabet. So the first one was on art, the second one was on the Bible, and we're going to talk about culture today, which is a real buzzword these days, and people use this word all the time. We talk about culture, and there is such a thing, you know. Uh, we all come from various cultures. Matter of fact, we create our own cultures as we go along. But the interesting thing about that is, as much as we use the word culture these days, that word is not in our English Bible. Uh, you would think that it would be. We, we act like culture is the, the end of everything today. As a matter of fact, uh, there, there was an older way to look at it that has changed to today. If you wouldn't have to go back 50 to 75 years to find the older way of looking at things. And that was, it used to be, that culture, when you, when you talk about culture, you talk about things that you need to get better at. And you need to change the culture. Or you need to become cultured, as we might say, which might mean maybe you don't have any manners and you need to learn, you learn your manners, you know. Uh, you basically cultured your children as they were growing up. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. Please. Thank you. You know, things like that. Uh, or maybe uh, you uh, want to learn to play an instrument or learn how to sing or do something uh, like that. Maybe uh, be in a play and learn how to act or speak. Uh, or maybe uh, just a, uh, a hobby that uh, you, you want to be a craftsman of a certain kind. Anyway, that was how to be cultured. And really one of the human uh, obligations of living in this world and uh, growing up in it is to better the world around you. And you do that by becoming cultured and changing the culture around you. Now, as opposed to that, there was nature. And in the old days, we looked at nature as what God had created. And we can't really change that. God's world is what it is, though we're good stewards of the environment and so forth. But you can't change a storm. You can't make it rain or keep it from raining. You can't stop a tornado if it's coming. I mean, you know, nature was what it was. Even the insurance companies, right, uh, said, well, if it's an act of nature, you couldn't do anything about it. So, you know, uh, so culture was something that you change. Nature was something that you can't change. But come up to today, uh, a whole, you know, a few generations maybe later, and those, the obligations to those two have flip-flopped when you think about it. Nowadays, culture is something that you've grown up in that you can't do anything about. But nature, well, I mean, we can change the sea levels, right? We can keep the, keep the uh, glaciers from melting. We can change the, the whole environment of the, of the world. But culture, I can't do anything about that. You know, so if a guy grows up in a neighborhood where it's bad language, not just bad grammar, but bad language and uh, all that, 
you just say, oh, well, that's the culture he grew up in. There's nothing we can do about that. So the change in those two things has been dangerous because on the one hand, we're thinking we can change what God has created and what God does. On the other hand, we can't do anything about the way we are. It's just the way we are. So thinking about culture and doing something about it is important. By the way, um, they used to talk, too, about manners in the sense that uh, in a culture, you've got two extremes to go to. You can have totalitarianism on the one hand. That is, you could live where they will tell you how you must think, what you must do, where you can go, where you can't go in a totalitarian culture. We, we've thought about it as communism in our lifetime. We might think of it as Sharia law maybe today. On the other hand, uh, there is anarchy, living in a society where there are no laws, uh, you know, no one can stop anybody from doing anything, you know, uh, kill whoever you will, steal from whoever you want to, and so forth. We kind of see a little bit of both around in places of the world today. What keeps either of those from coming to our country or to our state or to our neighborhood? The word is manners. Because manners is self-government. When you have manners, you say, I can't destroy someone else's property. I can't do that. I can't, I can't curse like that. I just don't do that. And so you keep the anarchy from coming your way. And on the other hand, you don't need the totalitarian laws that tell you how to think and what to do. You don't need that because you're going to do it yourself. You're going to obey the laws. You're going to be the person you should be. So manners be becomes that buffer between going to either of those two extremes in our society. Well, when we talk about manners and we talk about what this is, we're really talking about culture. We're talking about what kind of culture do we have. Uh, and America, having been founded on a, a biblical text, that is, we, we do believe that the Bible is God's word and it's something that, that should be followed, and that regeneration uh, through Jesus Christ uh, is necessary uh, for you, then we built a culture that we could truly say is a Christian culture in a certain way. But if we let that go and we say we're not going to build it on biblical precepts anymore, we're not going to build it on uh, God's revelation anymore, then who knows what the culture will be. The culture will basically be whatever human beings want it to be. So culture is an interesting study. Uh, it, it comes third in our study here. I just did a, a seminar on this last, last week, so I've got all these thoughts floating around in my head. But I want to approach it a little differently here in this hour. But since we don't have the word culture in the Bible, you know what we do have? We have some other words that are related to it that help us. We have the word world, for example, cosmos. The world is what? When the, if, you, if somebody said, what does that mean in the Bible when the Bible talks about the world? Could you answer that? You know, on the one hand, 
for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son uh, that we might have eternal life, of course. On the other hand, the same writer who wrote that, John, writes in his epistle, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what is the world? And yet we find out basically the world is what Satan and his followers create. It, they create this world that we're not supposed to love. Is that culture? I think it's very close to it. Matter of fact, of all the words in the New Testament that come close to being what, what we talk about culture as, I think the word world would come the closest. We have the word age. A lot of times in our English Bible where we have, our, we have the English word world, it comes from the Greek word age. Uh, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, but the word is age, having loved this present age. Sometimes we speak of the age in a sense of we say, well, it's just the age in which we live. We don't mean by that really the 21st century. <laughs> we mean by that it's just the way things are right now in our world. So the word age used a lot of times in the New Testament in that sense. We have the word customs. Uh, in the Bible, you know, Paul would be preaching in a town. This happened in Philippi, uh, and, and, and uh, they, they would arrest him and say, you're teaching things that are not our customs. Being, we're Romans, and you, or we're Greeks, and you're teaching things against our custom. Is that kind of culture? It may be. We have the word manners in the Bible, too, by the way. Uh, what manner of men you ought to be, and things like that. And then there are ethics. Uh, there, there's the word government and nation. In other words, in a certain sense, especially in the Roman government or the Greek culture, uh, what the government was really did determine what the culture was that they lived in. So we often, don't we, we go back and refer to the first century culture, the Roman world, and we say this is how, this is the, the world that the Christians lived in. Slavery, immorality, idolatry, that was their culture. And a lot of times that's created by government. So we do have a lot of words in the New Testament that uh, we learn about what we should be as far as culture goes. I think one of the best definitions for culture was, is given by a number of different men, and I have these quotes, but you remember the name T.S. Eliot, who was an English poet way back in the first part of the 20th century? You might remember that name. He said, culture is the incarnation of religion. Now think about this for a minute the incarnation of what you believe. So you live in your life what you believe you should live. Even if you're a liar and a cheat, somehow you've convinced yourself that's what you need to do. If you get into a particular situation and you can lie your way out of it and you tell that lie, then basically that's part of your religion. That's part of what you believe. I need to do this, so I will lie at this point. And so your, your religion is there are times when you have to lie. And your religion has been lived out in your life, and that becomes your culture. Even a murderer, I suppose, 
somewhere, you know, before he murders somebody, he has, he has reasoned in his head, I need to do this. It might be just out of pure anger. I'm just absolutely so angry. I can't stand this person. And he, you know, isn't that what Cain did to Abel? Just so upset about it. I'm going to kill this person. Well, then you have a religion in your head that lived out in your life, and your culture is a murdering culture. Maybe it's swearing. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's, you know, uh, anything like that. So I liked his definition, and many other people, even in our day and age, have used that to, to define what culture is. And, it, and Satan is the god of all of that. Satan is the one who, who tempts and manipulates and has, uh, you know, his emissaries in high places that tempt us to do these kinds of things. A writer that I've liked to read, he's a Baptist guy in Denver Seminary, and he wrote a book called The Gospel and the American Dream. And he writes this, Bruce Shelley says, Believers who cut free entirely from their society usually find themselves rootless and insecure people. I mean, we do have to be part of where we live. We can't just go up on a mountaintop or up on a flagpole somewhere and sit there for the rest of our lives. But Christians who never question their culture are usually shaped by public opinion rather than by the love of Christ. And that is the danger American Christians face as 21st century uh, Christians. That basically we are trying to please our culture and become like our culture because again, we can't change it. It is what it is. The neighborhood is what the neighborhood is. The country is what the country is. The world is what the world is. We just have to conform to it. And when that happens to Christians, they're really in trouble. We're loving the world and the things in the world. Let me make four points here for our lesson, and we'll go to four different passages of Scripture. First, in 1 Corinthians 9, let me give a little... Uh, intro to this. In, in the 1950s, a, a man named H. Richard Niebuhr wrote about Christians and culture, and he said there are different ways that we approach culture. Sometimes we run from it. Sometimes we infiltrate it. Sometimes we try to convert it. Sometimes it can, we let it convert us, and he, he went through this. And and his book has had a profound effect on the last 50 years of Christian thinking and culture. And a lot of people have written about it, against it, for it, and so forth. So I'm going to borrow four concepts that people have talked about in that sense. The first one here in 1 Corinthians is, there is a time to infiltrate culture. There's a time that you, you have to do something about it. You have to infiltrate it. Secondly, we'll talk about there's a time to confront. There's a time when you just have to say, stop, no more, and confront. Kind of like uh, what was the lady at the License Bureau in Kentucky who wasn't going to issue license anymore. Sometimes you just have to confront and say, stop. Sometimes you counteract the culture, which means you're going to change it. And you're going, to, you're going to bring Christian witness to it and so forth. And then, fourthly, sometimes there are times to escape the culture. 
when you just have to get away from it. You cannot participate in that anymore. So I think the Bible shows us the, those four things that at certain times Christians have to do maybe one or the other. So first of all, infiltrating the culture. Well, let's read again Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. If I had to vote for the most used and abused verses in the New Testament, these would be the ones <laughs> you'll, you'll remember as we read. 9, 19. Though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law. Now he clarifies it, not being without law to God, but under the law to Christ. That I might gain them that are without law. Uh, and this is the most abused verse. To the weak became I as a weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And people have used that verse to justify any way they want to live, basically, these days. But without doing that, I think that, that we do find here Paul saying, even in his ministry and life, he did what he could to get in with these people so that he might witness to them and win them to Christ. So to the Jew, he became like the Jew. There were, Paul continued even to keep some of the Jewish customs that he, he acknowledged Gentiles don't have to keep, and I don't have to keep them, as a matter of fact. But if he wanted to go to a feast day that the Jews were keeping and be there in Jerusalem during a feast day, fine. It's kind of like you saying, well, uh, you know, somebody's going to have a harvest festival in my hometown where, you know, and I'm going to go, you know, and eat the food and see the floats and the pumpkins and the sh whatever, you know. Uh, you know, maybe a pumpkin festival you're going to go to. So sometimes to the Jews, we become like the Jews. To the Gentiles, the same way. Uh, he he joined himself with two other Jewish people, Aquila and Priscilla, and made tents and sold them to anybody who came by to kind of make a way uh, that way. And uh, uh, when, you know, he, he scolded uh, Peter for, live, you know, going ahead and eating with the Gentiles, but when the Jews came in the room, Peter said, oh, oh you know, and, and he quit eating with the Gentiles and ran back over to the Jews. And Paul criticized him for it. He said, nothing wrong with eating with Gentiles. You know, sometimes you have to, and you better if you're going to win them. And then he even says to the weak, I became as a weak. And I, I think maybe the best way to take that is, um, uh, sometimes there are people who just don't know. You might say unlearned and ignorant, <laughs> barbarians, as Luke called those on the island of Malta, uh, those who don't know anything about the law or, or, or Jewish life or anything else. And Paul, remember, picked up sticks with them and sat down with them and visited with their uh, ruler on the island. That was fine, too. Now, in each of these, I'm going to say, that's what that means. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean practicing sin with people, does it? That's not what Paul's talking about here. 
I'm become all things to all men. You know, there are those who, who believe that Jesus was a party animal. And that's to quote their words. That he would eat, drink until he was drunk with, with people, if that's what it took. That's what, when it says he, he ate, he would eat and drink with publicans and sinners meant he went to their drinking parties and everything else. There are people who believe that, and so they practice it that way. So if going down to the bar and getting drunk helps you witness to the drunks, then that's what you do. And I see you all shaking your head, and rightfully so, because that offends your Christian sensibility, and it ought to, because obviously that's not what it means here. And it doesn't necessarily mean uh, doing otherwise neutral things that have a negative cultural connotation. Uh, maybe, maybe there's a maybe there's a logo that you could wear on a shirt, on a T-shirt or something, and um, this logo is kind of suggestive, but maybe not, unless you know what it means. So you wear it, hoping that those people who know what it means will think you're really cool. You're in with them. I mean, things like that, I guess. Uh, you know the you know Charles Colson, don't you? Chuck Colson, uh, all the way back to Watergate era and so forth. He wrote a book called The Body. I think since he wrote this book back in the '80s, he has changed himself a lot. But he actually said this: when Christians uncritically take up the language of the movement, they are perhaps, without even realizing it embracing an ideology that inevitably raises serious attacks on biblical authority. You know, we're all from the hippie generation, right? Did you like holding up the two signs, V for victory, even one way sometimes? Do you like holding up, do you like to see people hold up their fists like this? You remember back in the 60s, black power, holding up your fist and things like this? or other signs that might have meant the hippie, drug, free sex culture. You know, what, what is the upside down, what is the crowfoot uh, circle with the crowfoot in it, you know? Eh, maybe, maybe you have a little necklace and you wear it, and it's got that little crow, upside down crowfoot, which back in the 60s, you know what that meant. Maybe people today do, maybe not. I don't, I, I think it's even funny to see these 60-some-year-old guys dress up like hell's angels and ride their Harley-Davidson around town, you know. <laughs> I'm not against having a Harley-Davidson have one. They're beautiful bikes. But, you know, it's kind of like I was a child of the 60s then, and I'm going to do it now. Uh, come on, grow up. So, but, but you know, there is a time to infiltrate the culture. Now, I know, I know some guys that still try to go to... Uh, uh, what's uh, South Dakota? Where am I talking about? Where they take Sturgis, Sturgis yeah, and uh, you know to witness. <coughs> so, is that what it means? No, I think it does mean though becoming all things to all men. I think to Paul meant he will not give up on somebody. If somebody is in a particular culture, he's going to try to understand why, how they think, and what can I do 
to win that person to Christ. So if it's a Jewish person that's sold under the law, and they're, I mean, he was one, right? Persecuting Christians and this kind of thing, now he is going to do everything he can to try to understand where they're coming from and win them. Jew, Gentile, wise and unwise. And I think we see him doing that. So we can try to do that. I mean, don't we, uh, what do our missionaries do when they go out to a particular country? Suppose we have a missionary in an Islamic culture and part of the world. What is he going to do there? He's going to try to understand Islam, right? I read a great article this week on, by a, a, a woman, a lady who lives in Utah, a Christian lady. And she has really made it her kind of ministry to try to understand Mormons and witness to them and write about you know, their own literature and how it contradicts itself and so forth. And it was a great article. You know? So here's somebody who lives there. She's infiltrating her culture. Is it wrong to study Mormonism? No, we need to study those kinds of things if we're going to reach those people, right? I think that's what Paul meant about becoming all things to all men. So I think that's what this portion of Scripture means, and it doesn't mean, well, our generation loves ungodly rock music, and so that's what we're going to have in our church because then they'll come in and enjoy our church. I, you know, I just think we're not thinking when we do that. All right, secondly, let's go to a couple passages, 2 Timothy 4 and also in Titus, but 2 Timothy 4 which is, uh, there, there are passages like this. And secondly, there's a time to confront our culture. There's sometimes when we just have to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. So, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. After their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ear and turn uh, away from their ears from the truth and so forth. Oh boy, that is the, the culture in which we live too. And so what is this uh, uh, about reproving and rebuking and exhorting? In Titus just across the page, probably, 113, he's talking about these gainsayers he mentions in verse 9 and so forth. So in verse 13, he says, One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies, and this witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And I'm not sure when I read that rebuke them sharply, what Paul is suggesting to Titus he should do. He's talked about the elders here that are in charge. Maybe he's saying rebuke the elders for not doing this. You're my emissary. You're my sub-apostle on the island of Crete. Do it. Or maybe he's talking about rebuke the gainsayers. Or maybe he's talking about the households that let these gainsayers come in and teach them, rebuke those households for doing that. It's kind of strange. Maybe he's meaning, he means all of that. Um, another guy that I'd like to read is named Gene Veith, and his last name is spelled V-E-I-T-H, Gene Veith Jr. 
he wrote a book back in the early 80s called Postmodern Times. And in my reading and studying of postmodernism, that was the first book I looked at on a bookshelf one time and said, I'm not even sure what that is. I picked that book up and read it. And it's, of all the other things I've read since then, it still is one of the best things. Postmodern Times. It's 20, 30, 30 some years old now, but still a great book. Anyway, Veith said, both liberalism and evangelicalism surrender to the culture. Selling out to the dominant culture is, ironically, not a formula for success, but failure. And sometimes we just have to stand up and say no. Now, confronting the culture then, how do we confront? It, it does not mean breaking laws. Because the Bible doesn't give us permission to lie, to steal, Remember I, I reminded you that the, that the word for riot in the New Testament is the word, Greek word asotia, which means without salvation. The, the prefix a and the word sotia, we get soteriology, the study of salvation. Rioting is without, is some, leave that for those who don't know salvation. When you steal other people's property and break what is theirs, and become lawless, that's for the unsaved, not for the saved. And the Bible never tells you to do that. So that's not what it is. Um, uh, you know, so we know that there is a point, perhaps, where we have to give unto God the things that are God rather than unto Caesar's, but that would be simply a withdrawal or a refusing, not rioting and breaking and stealing, you know. Um, it doesn't mean either forcing other people to live like Christians when they're not Christian. And that's been a hard lesson for us to learn. And as a matter of fact, we're kind of morphing into a time in America where we used to be able to do that. We're not sure we can do it anymore. Where basically, if the great majority of Americans did have a Christian point of view, and maybe even were true Christians at some point, then those who are not Christians in our country pretty much had to live by laws that were going to be shaped by Christians. What happens when the majority is not Christian anymore, and the laws are going to be shaped by those who aren't Christians rather than Christians, which we see happening now? Then what do you do? Well, we can't, though... Uh, we can't say, well, we as a church and we as God's people sitting here in this room today believe that we ought to live like this, and so we're going to go outside these walls and onto the streets, and we're going to insist that everybody in Smithville, Missouri, live like we live. And they can't do it because they don't even possess the Spirit of God. So confronting the culture, I don't think, means that kind of thing. And there will always be this debate as to how much the church should be involved in social or political causes for that reason. We can say, I object, but we can't always say in our culture, but you cannot do that. For example, abortion is something that we can object to, and rightfully so, confronting our culture in the sense of saying no. But you can't go, you can't take a gun into an abortion clinic and kill the doctor because he's doing something that you believe he shouldn't do. You just can't do that. And you can't stop the procedure either 
if that's what our country is allowing by their laws. You don't have to participate in it. You know what I'm saying? So con confronting only goes so far. I think confronting our culture does mean this, being bold, and I'm going to speak about in this morning's message from Philippians how that church became bold when they saw Paul's boldness in jail. And so in our culture, as we see it becoming even more unchristian, maybe we need to get more bold. There are times when we just need to speak. And where we can, let's do that. Where we can't, let's walk away. Uh, sometimes you can say, I don't think you should say that. Uh, this, is a, this is a public place. I don't, you remember me telling you about doing that at McDonald's one time? I didn't make any friends, but I, w I was sitting in McDonald's down here on Choteau Avenue. And uh, this group of men comes in there quite often and has their coffee together. So they're in there one morning and I was reading something and they're sitting at this round table, older men, like a lot of you. And, and uh, they're talking very loud. As a matter of fact, they're cursing, cussing. You can hear it all over the restaurant. And sitting next to me in a booth just ahead of me is a, is a mother and some small children in that booth until finally she gets up and takes her kids and leaves because she's sitting right at the table that they're sitting at is just right here. <laughs> and I'm watching that, and I'm, and I'm hearing it, and I'm thinking, you know, grown men who ought to know better, acting worse than the teenagers, you know, who would come in here. Matter of fact, the teens are doing a lot better than the older men. So, you know, you, you say to yourself, should I just walk out or should I say something? And generally you walk out. Right, but I decided that time I'd say something, so I went over to the table, and there's maybe six or eight men sitting around this round, large round table. And I said, "Excuse me, guys." I said, "I introduced myself. Said I was a pastor," and so they kind of had to listen, you know, a little bit. I said, "You, you guys are grown men and ought to know better, and you're talking." in an ungodly, unchristian way when a mother and little kids are right next to you. And boy, their faces got white. And I could tell one guy, he isn't liking it at all. Matter of fact, he's getting mad. But the other guys are, are, you know, oh, okay. And I said, you know, I can't tell you not to do it, but I'm just telling you, you know, you're making fools of yourself and you're really offending a lot of people and you as grown men ought to know better. And so I left <laughs> and uh, never went back. No, <laughs> I don't know. So, so maybe sometimes you can do something like that. I mean, you know, uh, we, we, yet you've heard of some guy, you know, seeing some kids over here doing something. And so he, try, he goes over there and tries to say something. The next thing you know, he ends up stabbed or shot or something. I mean, of course, you have to be wise about what you do. Maybe there's a time to confront like that, maybe not. At least in our witness for Christ, in our ability still to hand somebody a track, and still our ability to maybe say, I disagree, uh, or I think that's wrong. Uh, our holy living is a rebuke to this, to this uh, society. Preaching the gospel is a rebuke to this society. Going out with the gospel, whether door to door or around the world, is a rebuke to this society. 
So there's a time to infiltrate, a time to confront. Thirdly, there's a, there's a time to counteract. Now, you're, you're in Titus. In chapter 2, he, in verse 1, he says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Remember, I was explaining that to you. Not that whatever you want to teach, if you teach it hard and long enough, it'll become good doctrine. <laughs> it means what is becoming of good doctrine. So when you go out and speak, speak in a way that enhances, that uplifts, that forms good things. And you have a doctrine. You know what that is. You know how Christians ought to live and talk. So when you live and talk, live and talk in a way that's becoming of what you are. You know, uh, I'd hear my mother say to somebody, you know, the way they were dressed, that's not very becoming of them. Remember that old expression? That's not very becoming. Well, that's kind of what the old English here does with this translation. Uh, things which become sound doctrines. As a matter of fact, uh, that very expression then in verse 9 is used again. Um, No, it's not. So I don't know where the other verse is. Sorry. Um, so it, th this does not mean, th th this, this counteracting the culture does not mean becoming purposely odd. It doesn't, I don't think it means what, uh, what our Amish friends may think it means. I don't think that's necessarily counteracting culture to become odd like that or you, you to do, do something that makes you stand out so much from society that you kind of look odd. That, after all, that's why our missionaries, when they go to a certain culture, pretty much dress like they dress, pretty much eat what they eat, and their homes are decorated like the people's homes. Nothing sinful about it, nothing even right and wrong about it, they're just, they're, but they're bringing a culture, a Christian culture into that as well. Um, it, so it doesn't mean shunning every cultural expression, but it does mean not letting the small things go, like manners, like proper speech, like good language, uh, like if you live in a, if you live in a, uh, a neighborhood where people put out obscene things, you put out good Christian things, <laughs> you know? Do, do something that counteracts it in that way. Um, Neil Postman, I, I'm recommending these books to you, wrote a book called Technopoly. He's taught, years ago, he wrote a book called Technopoly, which means what's going to happen when technology takes over? <laughs> and this was written like 30 years ago. He's a, he's a professor of literature at New York University. He says, we're not talking here, or what we're talking uh, about is not blasphemy, but trivialization against which there can be no laws. In technopoly, the trivialization of significant cultural symbols is largely conducted by commercial enterprises. This occurs not because corporate America is greedy, but because the adoration of technology preempts the adoration of anything else. So what happens because we can send a text on our phone anywhere in the world instantly? People put gross things on it because they can do it. 
and they see a picture of a gross thing and they send it immediately or put it on their Facebook or something like that. Is that why you should do it? Because you can? Is what he's saying? No. Symbols that draw their meaning from traditional religious or national context must therefore be made uh, impotent as quickly as possible, that is, by our culture, drained of any sac sacred or even secular connotations. The elevation of one God requires the demo uh, demotion of another, thou shalt have no other gods before me, applies as well to technological divinity as to any other. So kind of interesting. All right, let me go on quickly because we're out of time because there's a fourth one, and that is there's time to escape the culture, and uh, this means our separation from it. I have Second Peter 1, uh, uh, 3, and 4, Second uh, Timothy uh, 7 different times says escape, uh, withdraw, things like that. There's time, to, there's time to separate from our culture. In Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. If you let your children live in the world through lust, it will destroy them. It will destroy them. And yet Christian parents do this all the time and let their kids live in things that is controlled by lust and this lust will uh, corrupt and destroy. And we know that it will. So sometimes a Christian has to separate from it. If you have friends that are partiers and get drunk every Friday night, you just can't go where they go. If they talk like that, you can't take your kids around that. There's just some things you cannot do because it corrupts uh, in this kind of way. It doesn't mean putting your head in the sand like an ostrich. It doesn't mean... Uh, that you don't know what's going on in this world. You have no concept. You're not going to read. You're not going to watch. You're not going to listen. That doesn't mean that because you have to know and direct the ship in your world. Uh, so it doesn't mean that or monasticism and, you know, find a monastery up on a mountain somewhere and go live there and shut the door and don't talk to anybody. But it does mean, I think, willing to walk away. It does mean that even if it costs you a friend, even if it costs you... Uh, you know, somebody's good thought of you. Oh, I thought you were my friend. Oh, I thought you really cared about me. But you walked away from what they were doing because you can't do it. Whatever it costs, sometimes you have to do it. There's a type of separation I've termed as threshold separation. Remember me talking about this? And that is, you know, there's a threshold is, is where you enter a room. And, and I have found out in my lifetime, even among Christian ministers, there are some things I just can't participate in. So in the room where they live, maybe nine-tenths of the things I could live with, but the one thing they do, I just cannot abide. And so every time I go in with them and participate in them, they're getting me to do the one thing that I just cannot do. So rather than being in there and being an irritant to them, and being contrary to everything they're trying to design, I don't go across that threshold. I just don't go in that room. 
I, that doesn't mean I might not still be able to have a particular friendship in that group or a number of friendships or maybe go do something else farther away that doesn't involve that one thing I'm uncomfortable with. But I'm not going in that room anymore. So I give up the nine things because I'm not going to put up with the one thing. And so I don't cross the threshold into that room. And sometimes you, I know you have to do certain things like that too. So... Um, you know, not everybody has to avoid public school, for example, for the kids. But you may have your kids growing up in a district where you cannot put them in that school district. You just can't do that. And so your option has to be some, something else. Whereas maybe in a different district or a different school, a, a Christian can and, and make it okay. You know what I'm saying. Sometimes you just have to do that. Okay, so culture... We're going, to, we're going to hear more and more about as we go along and our children and grandchildren are going to grow up in, in a culture that basically, folks, is going to be more and more non-Christian. And uh, they, they need a lot of help and a lot of instruction. Mostly, we need to really believe this book. And when we read these things in this book, we really need to do them. And if we really do them because we really believe them, then we will escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, as Peter said it. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of these things today. And, and uh, Father, in this world in which we live, we want to be good stewards of the gospel and of the truth of God. And yet, Father, we want to do it in the way that you give us instruction to do it, sometimes uh, going forward, sometimes backward, sometimes speaking, sometimes withdrawing. Uh, Father, give us wisdom to know the difference in these things and help us, Father, overall that we might promote the cause of the gospel and do what we can uh, to honor and glorify our Lord. Well, thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks for being in our class this morning.